offend somebody by noon every day. There you go. Actively. That should be your goal. Yes. By the way, I hate your glasses. You do? Damn it. I don't know what to do. I only have one pair. I like your pink ones better. I wear mine. I've got like these blue light things sometimes. I have the same ones, but this is my black version. Do you want to know why I actually wear these? I've been told a lot that I have resting bitch face and <laughs> that comes from the eyebrows, right? Cause like your eyebrows are just kind of like flatlined. And so if you yeah. put this on, I don't have to like manage my face and I don't look angry. So sometimes I just wear it when I'm like extra grumpy or like hungover. That's like, that's like, we, we can end the podcast now. It's like for all you salespeople who are listening, how to fix resting bitch face. <laughs> yes, like sunglasses. By the way, can we move into what my creative resting bitch face? So last time, one of our earlier episodes, Matt sort of talked about how at Gong, they use LinkedIn so well to like drive Mark and he didn't mention you. So let's confront him on it. Oh, Matt, what the hell, dude? You didn't say anything. <laughs> That's just about mean. I mean, I got your back, Matt. Don't let him do that to you, man. <laughs> Well, you know, that, that's fine. That, that was a long time. Welcome to GTM Unfiltered, hosted by GTM veterans, Judd Borko, Craig Rosenberg, and Matt Amundsen. We make talking business fun and sometimes funny. That's because we're always unscripted, unfiltered, and unlike anything else out there. Get ready. That is part of the overall story with you, Chris. Here's what I'm going to tell you, everyone. Um, before we get started, is that, uh, and I, I'd like to hear more about your business. Um, sure. I, everyone would. But, like, look, he, here's the thing about you. From the point in time that we we're just teasing you about, where I first experienced like your uh, content when you were at Gong, right? You've always, always been the guy who, the one of the only guys that can either surprise me, teach me something I didn't know. Right. Or give me something I could go use. And yeah. that's what you know, Matt's talking about those old gong days. Remember that's I mean, like that those were that was incredible. But now you're like ramped up to like the eight millionth degree. I can't wait for your stuff to come out. Like we're spending a lot of time on discovery. I love all your stuff on discovery. And like um, it's just incredible. So he's but saying I, he's a fanboy. I'm a <laughs> fanboy. That's why I'm excited you're here. But but I'm, I'm gonna do this. I'm just gonna say. For Matt and I, like we started following you and uh, thinking about how amazing you were, and then following Gong based on you know those your old plays on LinkedIn. But now, just briefly, tell us all about like your new business. That wait, 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 real, real quick. Oh, we were told we're supposed to do this because m- people might not know who you are. That's so- what we're doing. Okay, yeah. I thought you were going to tell about. I was just going to say I was going to give you your 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 minute that you know you said that we were going to follow the script and you were going to intro. Uh, I, 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 this. That's what I was doing. What do you think I, I was doing? There's oh, no scripts. Gonna, Come I'm on. Just, I, I, I just keep saying the word because it's funny the to me. But pro- I, the brand yeah. promise here is All no right, Chris, tell us about your new business now. Yeah, so new business is called P Club, short for President's Club. Sometimes I get asked that, usually not by people in our market, right? Salespeople <laughs> usually get that P Club stands for President's Club, but every now and then there's somebody. Um, and the way you can think of P Club is it's an online learning platform for revenue and go-to-market professionals where we go find the best um, revenue and go-to-market operators we can, and they'll teach a course on a very specific skill. And we provide that within our SaaS platform and we provide it both to individuals as well as businesses. 
and we have a lot of fun doing it. So the, the gap in the market that we noticed is there's a lot of sales training, right? There's no shortage of sales training, but most sales training uh, teaches the what instead of the how, right? What being process, here's what to do and what to follow and how in our view is the skills, the skills people need to execute the what. And we get very granular with how uh, we define skills, right? So champion development, uh, negotiating with procurement, God bless you, uh, uncovering and quantifying pain, running demos. So very specific, we go find the best people we can to teach those skills. Um, and like I said, we're having a lot of fun doing it. That's amazing. How's my elevator pitch? I feel like that was that that was a good one. I was was gonna say that we we've heard you were obviously at Gong and doing stuff. I'd love to hear a little bit more of like what got you to P Club. Like you you noticed something, but but why go from Gong high flyer to do your own thing? Oh, we've got so many stories to tell here. Um, So I'll start with like the banger story. Um, In June 2022, uh, I was at Presidents Club in Punta Mita with my old team. Um, And I say old team because six months prior to that, I had transitioned from a sales leadership role to uh, leading new product introductions because I thought that would be great for my career. And one night while we're in like one of the most beautiful, relaxing places in the world, I got rushed to the hospital at midnight thinking I was having a heart attack. And it turns out I had an incredible panic attack, like an incredible panic attack. And so after like 20 hours of being in this Mexican hospital and then like running all those tests, they just told me I was super stressed apparently, which I was. I didn't believe it at the time though, right? It bought me like 24 hours of peace of mind. I'm like, oh, okay. It was just like psychological. And then 24 hours later, later I'm like, no, I'm dying. They're wrong. Like there's something wrong with my brain or heart or something like that. Right. So uh, my boss at the time, Kelly Wright, who's the president of the company, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She told me to take six weeks off. And I'm not even kidding. Like, I I can joke about this now. It wasn't funny at the time. During that six-week period, I had a panic attack probably every day for like 42 days to the point where I was like starting to develop panic disorder. And uh, it was because I wasn't convinced it was panic. I thought I was like dying. I thought I like, you know, had was having like strokes or something like that. And eventually that dissipated. There was this point in like August um, 2022 when I was returning to work and I started meditating and it instantly solved it. Like I haven't had a panic attack for, you know, like 15 months. But the reason I talk about that as the lead into P Club is I was at Gong for almost six years as, as an employee. And before that, I was an entrepreneur and it's always been my like life's professional purpose to be an entrepreneur. That's just like what fires me up. And so going through this kind of like episode that like forced me to do some soul searching, I was like, it's time, right? I'm going to go like build a business again from scratch. And so that's what led to just the desire once again, to be an entrepreneur. There's more specific stuff when it comes to P club, but sometimes that story is like kind of shocking to people because I'm like, so much of my life is like talking in front of people. (laughs) You're like, how how do you have a panic attack? Um, but yeah, we'll start there. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Um, I, mean, I, had, I had no idea. I would have thought that you're like the the most, you know, gregarious guy. No, I'm I'm such a disturbed, there. like screwed up individual. When you really start peeling the onion away, I'm sure like I have 
something that's just not going well within the within the brain but so, uh, so you fit in with our crew you're, you're part <laughs> exactly. of that yeah, was a great perfectly said yeah that was the perfect <laughs> anecdote there well let, yeah. here's, here's where i want to make sure we spend a lot because i learned so much from you on linkedin and and on youtube and these things so but let's just like to choose what we should talk about in SaaS sales today like if you had to describe something that nobody in the market is thinking about in SaaS sales, or they think they're doing it the right way, but they're not, what would that be? And what should they go do about it? I don't think any of these are mind blowing, but there's a number of them. Number one, I mean, I probably talk to 12 to 15 VPs of sales every week and every single one of them says my reps suck at discovery. Now you go ask the reps how good they are at discovery and they think they're an A plus. So there's like this weird disconnect with how sales leaders perceive their people's skills and how the people per- perceive their skills. Yeah. That's one, um, right? Nothing mind blowing about that. I think two is how sales organizations approach skill development, <clears throat> right? So there's this guy named Tim Ferriss, who I'm sure yeah. at least somebody in this room is familiar with. He has this podcast where he interviews high performers. And this uh, this podcast he did probably like eight years ago was like the genesis of P-Club, where he talked about skill acquisition. And his example was, if you want to learn basketball, that's too broad of a topic to be a skill. Basketball is a collection of dozens of skills. It's dribbling with your right hand. It's dribbling with your left hand. It's field goals. It's layups. It's dunking. It's passing. Um, it's rebounding. It's all those things. And his point is like, if you want to get really good at a skill, you deconstruct it into its component parts like that. And then you start to knock off one at a time. Now, bringing that back to sales, I see the same mistake being made where sales organizations are like, we need to teach our reps how to sell. We need to to teach them how to sell good 101. And that's how they approach it. And it's too broad. Versus, and this is what inspired P-Club to get really granular with our skills Sales is not a skill. Champion development's a skill. Um, uncovering value is a skill. Running a great demo is a skill. Writing a business case is a skill. Accessing power credibly is a skill. Cold emailing is a skill. Cold calling is a skill. Right. So when I talk to heads of sales and I deliver that insight, it instantly changes how they think about developing the skills of their sales organizations. Yeah. That's a long way to say it. Short way to say it is I think we're too broad when it comes to how we tackle skill development in a typical revenue or go-to-market function. So I, I got an, a, a follow-up. Yeah, I was going to say Judd and Matt are actually, so Judd's an entrepreneur, Matt's a CMO, but they are actually both really good at discovery. Like I've seen Judd work his magic and Matt sort of try to coach up people around him on those things. So like number one, like just, I was just watching the crew going, these guys are discovery fanatics, you know? So anyway. Yeah. I mean, the podcast will start to sound a little bit like a broken record, right? When you, when you look across the episodes and some of the people that we've chatted with before. And so Chris, like what you're saying is, is, is what a lot of other really brilliant people on this pod have said is that it's not necessarily like, uh, you know, kind of the big things in sales that are broken, whether it's the technology or the, or, you know, the, the, the sort of end to end, but it's the, the earliest stage and things like discovery. And then all the soft skills that are built around that, that have seemed to erode maybe as a result of, uh, (laughs) 
advancements in technology or maybe coming on the heels of uh you know zero percent interest rates and and a pandemic where it was just really mm-hmm. easy to buy stuff so uh this is it, it's interesting because you know prior to to getting back into the game uh Craig and I were working together at scale we were working with various portfolio companies but also doing some separate advisory or I was doing separate advisory on the side and this is an epidemic that I'm seeing across sales organizations that is not necessarily verticalized or channel based or you know this is a small business problem or it's an enterprise business problem it's happening all over the place totally. it, it feels as a marketer it feels really shocking because you know, I rewind the clock to 10 years ago and this, these types of things weren't the issues that salespeople were facing. Uh, and now all of a sudden it just seems like every sales group is suffering from problems, whether it's discovery, like I mentioned, or some of the other, uh, skills that, that, that you mentioned that are, that are offered as a part of your platform. Um, do you think that it was the pandemic that created this? Do you think that it's, you know, macroeconomic events or uncertainty what is what is driving this? Because it seemed like we went from 100 to zero real fast. I think the rate at which the world has changed over the last five years is one of the things that has driven this, yeah. right? Because sales, there's only a few static skills and timeless skills in sales. Many of them are timeless, but like as the world develops and as your selling environment changes and as your buyer's purchasing habits change... Now it demands new skills for reps to learn, right? Like selling to and through CFOs is a good good example. Nobody nobody had to do that prior to last year. And now we need to learn how to work with FP&A partners to get approval through the CFO. Most salespeople don't even know what FP&A stands for. (laughs) So, So there's this dynamic of like, as the world evolves, there are new critical skills that reps need to acquire to be able to keep up with how the world is evolving. That's one. The other one is just the go-go days of 2021. If you got on a Zoom call with somebody who can fog a mirror, then you were doing your job well. You require skill. And now we're in what I would call, I mean, I hope this isn't a normal economy, but I'm going to pretend it is just to exaggerate the point. It is better to assume that this is how things are going to be going forward because that drives the right action for you as a salesperson or as a sales leader, which is I need to learn the skills that I need to sell through good economies or bad. And let's just assume it's going to be a bad economy for a while. If it's not gravy, now I have the skills that I don't need, but I'm going to close deals anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Jeff, so I got, sorry, I interrupted you. Man. No, no, you're good. We always have great conversation. And, and actually, part of my question was already answered, but... So I, I, I'm talking to a lot of CROs, salespeople. You know, we know the environment's really tough right now. There's no mm-hmm. question. And people are looking to skill development. They're looking to, you know, new methodologies or or things. Do you feel like it is a skill development piece? I mean, one of the things I, I always go back to is like in finance, they say you have to assume that it is never going to be the same. You have to prepare for the unexpected, right? Which is hard yeah. to do as a sales rep if you're always trying to, <laughs> up-level skills, which ones do I focus on? Are we in a paradigm shift? Or is something really big happening or coming that is going to change the way we do sales? Do you think that's the case? I think it would be hyperbolic of me to say like the number one root cause to all of this is you don't have the skills, right? I think that's a huge piece of it because 
you know, as I talk to sales leaders and just observe the skills being executed, they're not where they need to be, but there's a lot of other factors, right? There's market factors, there's demand creation factors. So we can't blame it all on skills. Although I like to simply because that's what we can control. Yeah, of course. I can't, con- I can't control the external. There are other things I can influence and start to control, but skills, I can really start moving the needle there. Um, to answer your question about like some big change happening or going to happen about, God, I'm really butchering how you said this, but you know where I'm getting at. Yep. I don't think there's going to be like one massive sweeping change. I think it's going to be worse than that and better at the, that in the same time in the sense that it is going to be continual evolution of new skills and new go-to-market realities that need to sell. we need to sell within, right? I'll give you one more example. This is like not super recent. Who knew how to, who had to know how to run a product-led growth discovery call Yeah, five years ago? Nobody. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And unless, now, unless you're in Atlassian. Yeah. And, and now yeah. it's a new skill because the go-to-market model changed or the buyer's environment changed. And so there's always going to be new things that salespeople have to evolve into, which is exciting. That's not a bad thing. That makes it fun. You have to continue to evolve your craft. What's not to love? Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, What about, I wanted to ask you about uh, the desire. So you've got this need for us to do better discovery, but that in my, in part, Part of the buy the new buyer is you know everyone talks about product led as just the process of free to purchase but <laughs> yeah. it, but actually product led is how buyers are now like the you talk to SE organizations they're taxed to the hilt because demos have moved so far over mm-hmm. you know it's like the reprise guys used to say like the demo process has moved to the left like it's way early in the sales process and i know you've tackled that with you know sales where they we still have to do this fundamental selling but the buyer is bringing us over to the product side faster than we want to what tell me about that like what would you advise people on that are you seeing that first of all yeah i think there's a couple things to comment on um first is there's a difference between value creating discovery and then just selfish information gathering. And I think most, not all, but most businesses have an opportunity to do value creating discovery. I'll give you an example. P-Club, our discovery motion is very systematic when we're talking to a business buyer and they never wanna see a demo on the first call because what we do on the first call is what we call a skill audit. And we're getting their perspective on the skill gaps they see in their organization. And they value that conversation for its own sake because they usually have a small group of people from their side and it crystallizes as a group how they think about the problem. That creates value. That's not me going through a checkbox of like 12 qualification questions. So that's one um, comment I would make is most businesses have an opportunity to kind of like cloak their discovery in a value creating conversation. And it's gonna look a little bit different between each business. The second is I don't think showing a product early and discovery and doing discovery are necessarily mutually exclusive, Mm. right? To me, it's just a give and take conversation at that point. If if I've got some buyer coming in hot on the first call, he's like, I wanna see a demo now. That's what this call is about. Then what I'm gonna say is, I'm happy to do that. It sounds like the only reason you're eager enough to see what we do 
is you already have a well-defined problem you're trying to solve. So I'll make you a deal. Let's just play tug of war. I'll show you a little bit. And then you inform me a little bit about what's going on in your world. And we'll continue to unravel that. And usually they want to have that conversation more than they want you to just talk for a hundred percent of the time informing them on their product. Because again, it's a conversation and they're getting what they want out of it, but you're providing extra value by asking some questions um, in a way where you're weaving discovery and demo together, not just doing them sequentially one after the other. Hmm. Now, do you train? Do you block it? How do you, how much do you block that for the reps? Cause like Matt, when I was just talking about it, he's driving all these demos in. So like, what, what would we advise the sales team there? Is it a concept where the give and take is like, how you approach the call and we listen and we try to refine it and it's very ad hoc, right? Or is it like more formally blocked? You know, like, hey, do this here, do this here, do this here. What does that look like? I think it depends on the complexity of the product. I think you can get pretty systematic assuming the first call is gonna be simple, right? It's like, first thing you do, show these, uh, show the predictably most powerful part of your product to like, get their light bulbs on. And then the next question you ask is what's going on in your world that even drove you to wanna to have a conversation with us? And you peel back the onion, then you show something else, then you ask a question and you just kind of repeat that, right? By the end of that 30 minute call, you're probably still not as deep as you wanted to go, but you don't have to get to pay dirt on a 30 minute intro call. You just right. need to make progress toward that. You know, I'm just gonna say one thing then I'll let, turn it back to the guys because I see them all nodding uh um so you know at, at topo in the old days we used to say when we would listen to a call if the rep says okay this is the opening screen and or the login screen in the opening screen we have a demo problem yeah because totally. like what you said it's like dude you're not just opening the <laughs> the app and going okay well here we are it's like let's walk through the front door and say no you're saying let me hit you in the face with the like the the that big thing out the gate. I love what you just said there. So anyway, that was just a, I got to do a little bit of an anecdote, but big more importantly, that is a really big deal what you said right there. That's going to be my takeaway at the end of the show, Judd. Well, it's also worth doubling down on that and realizing like what is the purpose of a product demo? And it's to catalyze a decision. It is to empower your buyer to make the next decision that would progress the relationship. It's not to entertain them. It's not even to inform them or educate them. All of those things are in service of catalyzing a decision. And when you think of that as the purpose, then it totally influences your demo structure, which is another internal thing we talk about at P Club, which is demos should solve exactly. No more and no, no less. You should know the three to five pain points your customer has and then map those to the three to five capabilities that are going to solve that and don't show them anything more. Even if you think it's, even if you think showing this is going to like turn their light bulb on in some way and give them some big epiphany, it almost never works that way. We dealt with that at Gong so much because Gong was, uh, especially its first few years, just this amazing tool that, you know, had innovative features that nobody had ever seen. And you'd see reps like demonstrating the transcript. Uh, like keyword search for no reason, just because they think it's going to like knock somebody's socks off. And yeah. sometimes it did. But if you think about the kind of person who's like enamored by that, by just a feature, they're usually not very powerful people who can write a six figure or seven figure check. 
so well said. I, I, I love it. it. It it goes back to something I said just the other day. It's like the multiplier economy. It's like each step has to multiply value and trust. And that was a clear definition and, and, and example of how you use the demo to multiply trust and, and move things forward. So that's awesome. I'll give so you I, one more. Actually, yeah, keep going. I'll, 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 I'm, I'm happy to listen, man. We, we, we listen to each other talk <laughs> way too much as it is. So now I'll, I'll give you one more example of just like, you know, demo, the intent is to catalyze a decision. Yesterday I was giving a demo to the president of a company, like 250 sales reps. And I started to like walk through the concept of P club. And usually what we do in our demo after that is we start to map very specific course content to very specific skill gaps that they had mentioned. And I like just stopped and I'm like, this is where I plan on taking this. But like, you also give me the sense that you trust our content. So do you want to see this or do you want to skip ahead? And he's like, I don't need to see any of the content. Right. And so the goal was to catalyze the decision. Well, the decision's already made. <laughs> like, I don't have to demo anymore. In fact, doing it would have destroyed value in that sales conversation. Mm. Yeah. I think what I, what I see a lot and not, not internally at our company, but, you know, as people are selling to me, because continually they think I have this sort of endless checkbook because of my title, which is, uh, <laughs> you're a CMO. You'd spend more money use in the company. Own than money, Matt. For God's sake, <laughs> me and Chad, you use your own money, man. Uh, is, is an over-reliance on the demo to prove value because mm -hmm. they don't really understand what I'm trying to do or what my goals are, or what, you know, what, what change I'm actually trying to affect within my own organization. And the hope is that, if I walk you through this demo end to end from start to finish, at some point you're going to see something and go, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. But those are the those are the demos where by the end I'm just exhausted of use cases that are not applicable, yeah. workflows that don't make sense because maybe I I'm not using the same software that they're utilizing as a part of their demo, etc. And it's just tiresome. Like I would so much rather have a conversation with a rep for ten minutes, be like. Listen, Chris, this is what I'm trying to solve for. What parts of your product do it? And can I see that so that I can understand if it's going to work for my business and if I think it's easy or if I think my team is capable of actually utilizing it? So like oftentimes I will pump the brakes on sales reps to say, no, 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 stop, stop. Let me tell you what I want. And let's just, let's, let's, let's give me the cliff notes on this demo. Only the parts that are applicable to my business. Totally, totally. And I just say, Matt, thank you from the sales industry for taking our demos, even though you're never going to buy. We really appreciate <laughs> that. that. That's you're awesome. the reason close rates are so low right now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That has single-handedly affected the Martech industry in a way <laughs> I can't even understand, man. Which just makes me even happier. Hey, I have a I have a good one, and I think this is for everybody. Although obviously we've got the expert on the on the call. What you put him in quotes? As Why did you put him in quotes? That was. <laughs> I actually first. think I, hey, I would put myself in quotes if I. I put myself in quotes all day. So hey, that's that's. I, it's a good thing in my opinion. But is it the responsibility of the rep or the organization to close these skill gaps? Because what I'm seeing out here is a, a, an organization wants to close it in a very specific manner for a very specific reason that generally doesn't benefit the rep at all. And then when the reps come with the skill sets, one, they command higher dollar amounts. They're more educated on things. They're faster to pick up other skills. 
in your your everybody's opinion because i want to hear from everybody honestly like what do you think is it the rep or is it the org who has that responsibility and if not responsibility who should be thinking about it more man that is a good question so i would say it depends on the outcome each person is responsible to the extent closing that skill gap is going to influence that outcome and then at that point just your sense of internal locus of control versus external locus of control right so vp of sales if your close rates are declining and you have a number to hit and you are dead certain that closing some of these skill gaps would affect change in a positive way then in my mind it's a vp it's the organization's responsibility but it's kind of both at the same time because like if you're a rep most semi-successful and very successful sales reps get into sales because they want to control their own destiny Yeah, because you can get variable pay. And what drives me nuts is when I hear reps talk about like, my company doesn't invest in me. Like we, we live in such a miracle of a society where like, if you think like 50 years ago, skill acquisition opportunities were scarce. You had to go to a university and pay a ton of money and books on each subject it were few and far between, and mentors were not within reach. And now today you got podcasts, you got online courses, you got tens of thousands of sales books. Much of this is free or very cheap. And so like when I hear a sales rep just kind of like, you know, throwing their destiny away, being like, well, I'm not going to be successful because my, my company's not investing in me. To me, you probably shouldn't be in this profession then. So long way of saying, I think the answer is both just kind of for different reasons. Guys. Pat, you want to go? Sure, 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 sure. I mean, I think it's both. Uh, I think, I think if you want to be a great sales leader, you have to have in your DNA, great sales effectiveness, great sales training. One of the things that people don't talk about when they when we talk about Marketo is how damn good Bill Binch was at training our sales team mm-hmm. and Patrick Donnelly and everybody else who was in sales leadership there. We trained the shit out of that team every week for an hour. And it was not just, hey, here's what marketing's up to. Be prepared for leads from Dreamforce or hey, this is the new product that's launching, but like, let's break down how we do negotiation today. Let's role play. Let's test uh, how well you, you, you're you absorbing this and then bring me examples from, uh, from your calls this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a breakdown of every facet, just the way Chris is talking about. It. It's, it's so funny that in my opinion, the way I grew up in Silicon Valley was like, this is just what people do. This is just how a great sales organization is run. And it's just not the case at all. And it's the reason why Chris now has a business because people aren't doing this. People are, you know, people will, will build their career as a leader, but I hire great people. You know, I'm really creative in the way I can get deals done. I know how to scale an organization. I know how to run a field motion, et cetera. But like, to me, if you're a great sales leader and like training isn't a big part of your DNA in terms of how we up level the team that we have uh and 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 constantly iterate on on our on our skill building and our and our sales process then i don't know that that person's truly truly a plus so 
if you're if you're a sales leader, you have to be you have to be making this a part of like what is the sort of mission statement of of our sales team. It's not just to go close deals, but it's 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 also to increase the skills of our team and 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 make sure that they're always up to snuff. The caveat to that is everybody's career is in their own hands. And, you know, one of the things uh, about like the marketing automation days was whether you're a Marketo person, an Eloqua person, a HubSpot person, like you saw these demand gen marketers going out and getting certified, getting tested, utilizing this as like, hey, this is my skill set. And, you know, we published a, a report at Marketo is like the people that were Marketo certified demand gen marketers were getting paid $70,000 more per year. And a salesperson, to Chris's point, has all this information, maybe too much information, so it's hard to know where to start, but there's always something that you can hone your skill set on and you can challenge yourself to say, hey, I, I, I really want to work on my opening or I really want to work on my closing. I really want to work on my ability to be multi-threaded or to prove value at various stages in, in the sales cycle. So there's always an opportunity for that. But I think it's incumbent upon sales leadership to say, you know, constant evolution, constant training is is a mission critical component to the way we run sales here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think some of the best sales leaders, they're careful not to broadcast this to their team or do this in front of people. But to me, the best sales leaders are the ones that are cringing the most when they're listening to their team's calls mm -hmm. because they're like you know, critical or anything, but because like they have a standard of excellence. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of the difference between being like a true blue sales leader and then just a manager of a function, a manager of a function, at least in the way I'm defining it in this conversation, is probably not that concerned about skills. They're just, you know, P&L, um, process, mechanics, that kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with those things. You need those skills too. But you know, the, what makes sales such a great profession or profession is how skill oriented it is because it's fun to acquire skills. It's yeah. it gives you a sense of fulfillment to master a craft. Yeah. So. Um, you I okay? to, okay. I'm pain. I, I, I was like, do you have a headache? Like, you're okay? <laughs> no, I was, you know, it's like I just think about. You know, I remember when I first started in sales, it was like, you know, I just, that was sort of my habitual thing. I'll just throw information as fast as I can into my head. So I went and started, tried to read books and it didn't work. And they were good books, books I read now, spin selling, right? I was like reading Neil Rackham and Stephen Covey. And with, without, it's like, I had to reach this point in my career where I understood what I was doing for books and for training to make a difference in my life. Mm. In, in other words, in defense of the sales, the individual, not that you guys were ripping on them, but like, uh, it's hard to know how to go build your skill set because a lot of stuff is terrible. That's why we have Chris here. The guy's amazing, right? And very, very specific. So like, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking, I had to look it up. Like, so I read, I tried to read all these books. You know, the best book I read back then is a book that's no longer in print. It's called Sales Mastery hmm. it was by Barry Trailer. It's a fiction book on sales. It made it amazing for me. And it was the story of an enterprise sales guy who was like on his, basically, this was it, man. He just couldn't sell anymore. He wasn't doing it. And guess what? His manager came in. And uh, he got an RFP. This is like pre-challenger, pre-our conversation with Chris. And she said, whoa, 
No, go back to him and said, I'm not going to quote this until you tell me more about what you're trying to do. It's it's just this incredible story. And it's it's like uh, when I saw Barry, I told him, you know what? I'm an avid fan of your book. But you go on Amazon, it's like, you know, like you might have to find it in a, a vintage bookstore. Hmm. But my just that was a plug for that. But, you know, I tried to read all this stuff. I, I tried to sort of take it all in. It was just so hard. And so, like, I believe on the individual contributor side, a lot will change once we can get things like, so let's say, you know, Chris, as your business grows and people get more exposure to it, they got to hear from their friends because they not only need to know how to go, like what they should go do that's good because so much is bad. Uh, They have to know how to use it. Mm. So like, you know, the other thing is you go into a portal of educational content, it's like, you know, what you choose to do first, second, and third is actually critical to whether they're st- they'll stay. The rules of sales tech apply. These are inherently efficient people. They won't add things to their life. They only give you a couple seconds to fi- for them to believe you give them value. Then mm-hmm. they walk out. So like, you know, I believe that um, there is a percentage. I'm going to make the percentage up. I believe between 30 and 40% of sales reps want to learn. Okay, and are always trying to learn. If we can help this next generation of reps who need to learn, um, you know how they go do that. I think they, I think they would. They just need to know, and there needs to also be some fud. Like they need to know. Well, that top rep went and did uh, P Club on their own and figured out how to do a demo. Um, so I think that's important, you know, because I'm, I just my experiences were horrible trying to wrap my hands around how I make myself better. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's that's on the individual rep side. Um, and and by the way, there's like today I did a call. These reps, they were just great. They were great. They actually weren't saying it, but they were craving enablement, craving help. And it's like it's out there. We just got to figure out what to go do on the manager side and the leadership side. Um, what I really like about the way you guys have been talking about training and sales and enablement is what I always felt the flaw was, is what Chris said out of the gate, which was you, so you could go read, I don't want to bash a book, but a methodology book. And this actually was the secret of Topo. We'd say, okay, well, let's break down your sales process. So like we, we followed the challenger into so many accounts, right? Because they'd say, okay, well, we have the challenger. What do we go do? It's like, well, first of all, let's figure out, are we trying to get in the door? Are we in the door and trying to do so we would break those things down in my opinion as a sales leader against sales tech and against enablement uh you got to look at your entire the buying process what the sales process looks like and look for the gaps and you got to figure out those gaps and it's exactly what you said so i'm like repeating it but that's what you know i used to you know at gartner it'd be like someone come in and say well what should we go buy from a sales tech perspective well first of all whoa like Let's go look at how your buyers buy. Let's go look at how you're, uh, you know, talking to that market. And then we will figure out where there's latency and roadblocks and we'll go fix that. Uh, sales leaders should always be doing that. And what Bill, who uh, I remember I was on a panel with Bill Bench like a year after the first Marketo run. And he, they're like, well, what would you have done differently? He's like, I would have been building playbooks from the get-go, like enabling, enabling, enabling. And, um, but, you know, he was naturally doing that, right? He would say, well, we're going to launch a new product. And he was breaking down the training and training it as they would sort of take the product to market. 
talk yeah. about the you know quote it like everything was broken down and i think that's really key i don't even remember the question but i just figured i would go <laughs> on my soapbox it's yeah, you, an, you answered it perfectly man it was spot on and i'm just gonna throw in like one i i agree with, with you chris in that like it depends it's both but i also say and this is the easiest way to in my opinion if you're not getting what you need to be successful it's on you your company does not know all of your gaps and neither you're, they're not taking the time to figure them out the vast majority of the time. Cause I don't think these days sales leadership has the time, even though it's their job to know their reps, they don't have the time with all of the things that are getting thrown at them from data to, to planning, to, you know, enablement to whatever to, to know. So if, you're not getting what you need and you know you have a skill gap or you're not sure what that gap is and you're trying to figure out, it is on you to go do it. Yeah, and that, yeah. that that's... It almost doesn't matter if that's true or not. Because like, so Tony Robbins has this quote where he's like, you should believe in the belief that is most empowering, whether it's true or not. And this is a perfect example where like, we can, we can talk about whether it's on the company, we can talk about whether it's on you as a rep, but if you're a rep, like, are you more empowered by believing it's on you or are you more empowered by believing it's on your company, which is an external for force that you have very little control over. And again, whether it's true or not, you are going to be more likely to be successful if you choose to believe that this is on you, because now it's like this internal locus of control thing we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But I, I wanted to go back on Matt sort of also taking it to other roles besides sales. You know, it's funny because now that we're going back to events, right? I'm off the circuit. Now I'm back on and I'm seeing these folks, which was, you know, I used to see the, a lot of the same folks over and over. But, you know, I was just thinking about this at Dreamforce, which is, you know, the marketers and demand gen folks from 12 years ago when all this yeah. came out, the ones that went to every webinar and every event are like yeah. the superheroes now of CMO hood, right? Because they were taking it all in, man. They were like learning like crazy. And they and it, they weren't hiding in a quarter. They weren't too standoffish. They were trying to take it all in. Like the ABM movement, I just remember these people, they were coming to all the events that we were putting on. It's like, oh God, you know, are they going to make it? No, they're taking it all in. They're talking to their peers. They're listening, to, uh, you know, they're getting trained on this stuff and they became the queens of demand gen ABM CMO hood. So like, I, I just, that was an interesting tact, which is like, you know, we're talking about sales reps and their career development, but like I've seen firsthand what I can do for other roles in the organization, you know? The thing that uh, that I think about a lot, and this, this popped up slightly earlier in the conversation is like, you get individual contributor sales reps that get really excited about technology, data providers, and they'll like go on LinkedIn. They'll be like, oh yeah, you know, um, sales loft is better than outreach. Outreach is better than sales loft. Uh, you know, Apollo is better than Zoom Info. Zoom Info is better than Apollo back and forth. But like, why are sales reps not advocating for the great training that they get? You know, like. <laughs> Such a good point. You know, like. Because it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But, but also it's like, you know, I went through, I did this training with with p club or i did this training with you know uh some other person and like now i'm closing 25 percent more deals like they should be advocating for each other and the thing about marketers is like marketers are more they're they're a little bit more tribal in that like 
hey, you know where I'm learning my information? I'm learning my information at these topo summits. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's up on Sand Hill. It's, it's a very nice location. You guys should come and hang out. Like, it's a good time. Uh, or I'm joining the Marketo community or I'm reading HubSpot's blog. Like, marketers tend to share the information around, like, where they're up-leveling their skill set, uh, like, really prominently, whether on social or just in in their conversations that they're having with their peers. And I... I I don't know that like salespeople are doing that same type of thing. And I don't know if it's because they're like, look, I got this training and that makes me the shit. And so I don't want anyone else to get it or, or they don't want to admit that they had, you know, holes in their game. I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure. Hmm. That's an interesting observation. I mean, it, people, it people roll. About, I mean, they, they, they have the personalities that tend to be in sales versus those in marketing. I think that's part of it. Uh, personally, what I see is a lot of salespeople believe that, we're always in competition, not kind mm -hmm. of the mentality of there's enough for everybody. And I think yeah. that that's a big miss on sales because I think that a lot of sales actually, sales people and sales leadership have the ability to help develop a better sales process in, in its entirety if yeah. they look at we're on the same team. And this kind of goes into one of the things that I wanted to kind of like, one, one of the things that I personally say to a lot of people is it, it the biggest miss of sales, reps, leaders, whatever, they do not treat their internal partners and stakeholders as customers. They act like they're the customer, which I think goes against everything they're taught. And hmm. I, I would argue that if they change that mentality, we would see more alignment through organization, rep performance would increase, and support from all positions would dramatically increase as well. That's something that I believe personally. So tear it up, believe it, hate it, whatever. Love to hear what you guys think on that one. I think it's a good call out because I think a lot of reps come some, not all reps, of course, but many reps come across as entitled internally, you know, because they've got the, the revenue power play. Mm. And so they have the, I'm the internal customer mindset. I've never thought about that before, but I think that's a powerful observation. Yeah. I think also that they're in the biggest pressure cooker outside of the CEO. So like, I, I, I mean, I understand it is, it is tough, man. It is tough to be a rep, especially, you know, you it, to humanize it, to think of people who are out there trying to make a buck and maybe you're growing a family and all that stuff. I mean, that's tough. That is, that is a tough world to exist in. And I think, you know, if, if things start going bad, it's really hard to pull yourself out of a downward spiral. It's very hard to look inward as a human being, whether that's as a sales rep or like, you know, with just your own personal lifestyle or in your relationships, it's very hard to like, look at yourself and say, mm, it might be, you know, I might be the problem here. Uh, or like, there are some things that I can do to empower myself to go solve these problems. Mm -hmm. So like, Sometimes these conversations steer into territory where it feels like I'm being critical of, of of salespeople and I couldn't be more sympathetic. I think, you know, I I want like the ultimate measure for me as a CMO is like, am I building a process that's leading to a really, really successful sales team? Uh, you know, because I largely exist in, in in growth stage companies and that's what that's the outcomes that we're looking for. Like I want the sales team to think of me as like that guy rocks. He gives me the best pipeline. He gives me the best, uh, you know, enablement. 
He builds all the assets that I need to be successful. He listens to my calls. He hears what's changing in the market, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's what I don't want an adversarial relationship with sales. I want to empower them as much as humanly possible. So some, sometimes we can say things and it just sounds like, oh man, this guy's just hypercritical of sales reps. And it, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, look, not to bring back Bill, but like another time I was on a sales tech panel with him and uh, I forget who it was. It was like, well, if you, what would you tell a rep if like, um, you know, if they didn't get the sales tech they need, like what should they go do? And, you know, Gerhard Gishwant or whatever his name is said, oh, well, you should quit. Right. And Bill goes, well, wait a minute. Hold on a sec. My best reps will break every wall down in the building to get what they want to get their deals done. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and that is a good sales rep. Now, mm-hmm. could they talk differently. Could they view the fact that these are their internal partners and sometimes mm-hmm. not be so mean to them? Yeah. I'm not talking about like how they <laughs> engage, but like we should be careful here. Like these, a lot of times to get a deal done, um, especially a big one, they gotta, they do gotta knock. You know, they got to knock on a lot of doors and the sense of urgency they have is often not shared with the people that they're dealing with internally. Totally, totally. But but, but I'm going to, hold on. I I would argue that's exactly why they need to treat them as a customer because then you're not breaking down doors. You're going, we need to work together to achieve this. And they go, you're right. So that's kind of where I was going. But no, I'm in agreement with you. Like the best reps, they get what they need. And I just think that there's a better way to do it sometimes of beating people up and then be creating an adversarial interrelationship. I, I agree. How you do it. Yeah. It's All right. Look, we're going to run out of time. I needed to go back on something, Chris, that you brought up. So selling to FP&A or through, well, how did you describe it? It was really well said. It was like two and through? Two and through the CFO. CFO. So I, I'd love to hear more about that. Like what, what are you telling um, reps on that? Um, yeah. leaders well, this, uh, this comes from an interview I did with three CFOs a little bit earlier this year. Um, it was Tim Ritters over at Gong. It was Jim Kelleher over at Drift and then Michael Filippo over at Invoca. And I had them on this webinar and the entire theme of the webinar was how can sellers sell to CFOs in this economic meltdown? We talked about a bunch of different things, <clears throat> but one of the things I called them out about was uh you know i asked them how to get access to a cfo and they're like you don't we we don't want to talk to salespeople. <laughs> and i was like okay i expected you to say that but like help me calibrate this you don't want to talk to salespeople. what they don't want to do though is work a deal for six months and get surprised at the finish line when the proposal hits your desk only to get slammed and the deal dies And so how do we reconcile these two conflicting desires? And all three of them like were unanimous about this. And it was some of the best sales advice I've ever gotten. If you sell the like enterprise accounts, they said, every C-level executive, the champion you're selling to has an FP&A partner at a company of size. And that FP&A partner is the deputy to the CFO. And they work with the line of business people on spending and on return analysis and these kind of things. And so as a salesperson, when you're getting ready to launch the most labor intensive part of your sales process, right? Like maybe it's a proof of concept and you're aligning on success criteria, 
you should be asking for that FPNA partner to be in the room and then coaching them to keep the CFO informed throughout the rest of the sales process. And that there were, this is probably one of the biggest webinars I've ever done. And I think it was just because of the topic, right? Sellers yeah. are really struggling with this. There were like 5,000 people registered. And that like two minute talk track that they gave just like up leveled the room in such a significant way. Cause what all the salespeople were trying to do before then is like, you know, trying to bull charge and like steamroll and get access to the CFO. And they instantly made it clear how you approach this. That's amazing. Matt, are you creating any product marketing or enablement for the uh, that part of the sales cycle where you have to enter into the sort of finance part of the conversation? I'm just curious. I haven't. I haven't. No, but uh, I have homework. I, I've heard. I've heard some of the CMOS have been like they're thinking more about it now more than like probably ever in any period of time where they're like looking at them as a key stakeholder. But then the challenge is, how do you get the information in front of them? Well, well, this is another point of, you know, I made the point earlier that sales skills are, are, are always evolving. This makes it clear how important champion development as a skill has become, because sometimes you might, they might not have FPNA or it's just not a rigorous process. Now you've got to coach your champion and empower them with a well-written co-authored business case to sell on your behalf. And that's like an isolated skill by itself, right? Most salespeople don't understand how to identify a potential champion, how to convert them into being an active champion um, and how to empower them to close the deal when you're not in the room. Cause you're not going to be in the room a lot. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Chris, quick question for you. Very tactical. Get on a plane and get out to your prospects or keep trying to sell over zoom. What's, what's the move? Depends on the deal size. I will tell you, um, if it is a deal I want, I'm going for the jugular. I'm getting on a jet, right? Like money loves speed. And the best way to act on that fact is occasionally you got to get on a jet and get the deal done. We have not figured out how to replicate the power of in-person meetings virtually yet. I'm not saying we do this all the time or, you know, put some big company policy in place. All I'm saying is you will be able to reach a turning point in many deals if you can get face to face with the right people. I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, if there are any salespeople listening to this and you have a travel policy that prevents you from doing that and you go do it and you close the deal, no one's going to care. No one's going to care that you booked a $600 round trip United Airfare. Yeah. You'll you be lucky to get 600 these days. But anyway, that's another story. Oh, yeah. Well, middle middle seats are still available. So, so what, I mean, we're getting close to time, but I do have kind of kind of a, a build off of that a little bit. You know, events are coming back. Obviously, sales reps seem to love events, and I'm a I I I'm not as big on events anymore. No, I I, I kind of don't think that they work the same way. Pro event in any variance, right? Like mm -hmm. there's small, intimate. There's super big. Thoughts on events moving forward as as a big motion for sales reps. I'll speak through the lens of like CEO entrepreneur. I love events if I'm speaking there because I can continue to build my audience and doing that in person is far more powerful than anything you can do online. I personally don't know how to event good, like outside of that, right? Like you put me at a booth and I'm 
if somebody's like, I need you to go generate like 300 signups, I'm probably not your guy. Um, so I, I don't really know. I don't consider myself an event expert, although I want to be there if there's a speaking opportunity that I can take. I, I, and, and now we have a, I have a title, how to event good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a book. How to event good 101. Bell more faster. <laughs> um, I know we got to go, but I would say this to you, Judd, events are back. How you handle them is what matters. Is yeah. That, yeah. You, you have like Eisenberg at the, my go to market summit. She's like, you can't just put a booth in that'll fail. But like, if you're going to an event and you're going to have dinners and you're going to set up meetings beforehand, Matt used to set up, I'm not kidding. Like what, 180 meetings before the Marketo Summit? I mean, well, no, yeah, the one year where we did the sales off summit at Everstring, and that was the very first time I ever, like, literally saw Gong, right? Because Chris was there, and it was like, uh, I can't remember which hotel was downtown in Atlanta. It was like maybe there was like 500 people, 600 people at that event. We had 120 meetings. We, we, We booked a meeting with a quarter of the people there. Uh, and that's like, that's, that's how you got to do it. Like, I believe there will always be some smattering of meetings or demos that you can book on site, but like 90% of them need to happen, need to be booked before the show. And like, there'll be attrition and all that shit or whatever, but like, you have to show up knowing that the event's going to go well, instead of showing up, hoping that the event's going to go well. Yeah. Judd, per your point the other day about the SDR, the fall of the success of the SDR, leveraging that moment in time. We know they're going there. We know that they want to go there and listen and network and under, you know, hit the expo hall. We have a better shot there being successful, reaching out to them and getting the meeting. All right. We're out of time. Well, I got, I got one, one, one last thing. It's creativity. I'm going to say I just saw a booth recently where they did a hot wing, wing eating challenge while interviewing people and people were <laughs> flocking to it. Comsor, I'm calling you out. You guys did a great job. Um, that is a great idea. And, and, by the and way, I'm going to tell why you, why wasn't I invited? You know what? Me and Orlov are going to do a chicken wing eating contest as our next video. I'll win. I yeah, eat well, so many wait, I'm in now. I, I'm, I might lose, but I want to be there. <laughs> well, this is a proximity fight, Judd, because three out of the four of us are currently in Foster City, I believe. Uh, Fire hey, hey, right I'm going to close the deal. I'm getting on the plane. I'm getting on the jet. Yeah. Close the deal. <laughs> never happened. Oh, yeah. Well, we welcome you with open arms into Foster City. There you uh, go. All right. Awesome. I got Chris, thank you. Thank you, Amazing. Thanks, guys. Thank you, man. Honestly, dude, I love this guy. He's a, I mean, Chris, you're amazing. We'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to GTM Unfiltered. To hear our innovative insights and strategies, visit gtmunfiltered.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.